All right, we are continuing our discussion of the power of positive confession, which is based, as you all know, on Apostle Frederick Casey Price's book by the same name. Now in this message and in Apostle's book, we are stressing the power of speaking the word of God that moves God to confirm in your life this word that you confess with your mouth. You confess his word with your mouth and he moves to confirm that word in your life and in your circumstances. Again, let's review just why the word is so important and so powerful for us to confess. And to find this primacy of the word, we look, as always, to the scriptures themselves for an answer. Why is the word so important? God's word is always active and supreme. We know it's supreme. I don't know if you always realize that his word is always active, always at work, always busy working on our behalf. God's word is a gift to us, and this word is always active and supreme because God's system is based on his dynamic word. As Apostle Price writes in the book, God has designed his system to work by his word. That is what the Bible is for. God has given us his word in the Bible so that we would know his word, so that we would believe his word, so that we would say or confess his word, so that he would confirm his word in our lives. This is why, I mean, this is the way God's system works. Now, in its content, the Bible is quite clear on why the word of God should be the supreme thing in our life as a Christian believer. And we find in Psalm 138.2, and I've given these to you before, Psalm 138.2, this is David praying to the Father and saying to Father God, for you have magnified your word above all your name. God has magnified his word above all his name. Since God operates through his word, he wants us to focus more on that word than we do on his name. God is represented by his word. His word is who he is. So when we know, believe, and speak his word, we are delighting in the Lord as the word calls for us to do. We are worshiping the Lord as the word calls us to do, and we are loving the Lord as the word calls us to do. And in God's word, we find his precious promises. These promises include the promise to confirm his word that we speak or confess. The word also contains the many gifts that God has so freely given us. But note this, God is his word, in other words, the word is God, God is his word. So in giving us his word, he is giving us the supreme gift that he himself is. He's giving himself to us. Now, this primary rank of the word is clearly echoed by Jesus in Matthew chapter four, verse 35. That's Matthew chapter 24, verse 35, where Jesus says this, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. In other words, when everything else is finished, there's no more earth, there's no more heaven, there's no more anything, my words will by, by no means pass away. Now we know that Jesus and the Father are one. So the words of Jesus are also obviously God's words. We see this from two scriptures we just examined. Oh, I'm sorry. We see from the two scriptures we just examined, Psalm 138, verse 2, and Matthew 24, 35, that there's nothing that God values more than his word, and that this word is everlasting and will by no means pass away. Now, to, to understand the, the eternal and everlasting nature of the word in the Bible, we need to look again at the origin of the word in scripture. What is the origin of the word? Where does the word come from that we find in the Bible? We're told in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16, that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. How much of the scripture? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, what does this mean? To inspire means to breathe into. You know, when you die, they say he expired. That means 
the breath and the life has left out of you. So inspired means to breathe into. Through his Holy Spirit, God inspired the authors in the Bible to write what they did. So scripture in the Bible is the inspired word of God. And you've heard us say this many times here. We see this confirmed in 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, which says, no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved, that is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, because of its divine authorship emanating from the Holy Spirit, the word like God lives in an eternal now. The word is always now. God is now, faith is now. Faith, in other words, there's no time in God as you know. There's no separation in, in, with God in terms of past, present, and future. That's in human sight. There's no present. There's only an eternal now. So faith and the word are synonymous. Did you hear what I just said? Faith and the word are synonymous. When it says that we walk by faith, you can say we walk by the word. Uh, faith and the word are synonymous. You don't hear that, that often. You heard it from me, but uh, they are synonymous. So that is why we have in Hebrews 11.1, 1, now faith is. Faith is now. The word is now. God is now. Those who see that God's word is supreme and everlasting, meaning that it lives now and always. And we see this expressed in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, which says this. For the word of God, we're reading Hebrews 4, uh, verse 12. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Now, in the scripture above that I just read, the ESV, that's the English Standard Version of the Bible, says this way, the word of God is alive and active. Now, I mentioned the ESV version because that's precisely what the word of God is. It is important that we understand what this means. Commenting many years ago on the essays of the French philosopher Montaigne. Montaigne, by the way, lived in uh, the 1500s in France during the French Revolution. Brilliant philosopher and writer from the aristocracy. But he was so popular that uh, the citizens, the revolutionaries, didn't bother him. They were going around cutting off the heads of all the other aristocracy. But he was so loved and beloved by everybody that they... But would they actually come into his chateau and, and, and eat and drink and then go out and kill more aristocracy. So anyway, uh, Montaigne, brilliant writer, and he's generally credited, by the way, this is not all in here, I'm just giving you some. He's credited with inventing the essay style of writing. He certainly popularized the essay, you know, the short form of writing. That's Montaigne. Anyway, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who was, after all, a minister of the gospel, his father, of the same church that his father had been in, and... Of course, he left that <laughs> at uh, one point in his life. But anyway, he was a great uh, fan of Montaigne. And he said of Montaigne's writings, cut these words and they would bleed. They are vascular and alive. They walk and run. Now, I feel that the same can be said and perhaps even more so about the words in the Bible. God's word is alive and active, palpitating, running and walking. Why? The word is busy today, busy now in bringing about the intended purpose of God for us, his people. It is important to know and understand that for us on earth, God moves on our behalf through his living word and through the work of his living Holy Spirit. The intended purposes of God's word are important because they involve the current actions made possible by the word that all benefit us. That's the saved and the unsaved in some cases. The unsaved. And so the word is alive and active, working to do the following things that I'm going to discuss. And I put them out here so you'll have these. You can always refer back to these. 
you know these because we've talked about them, but I'm going to give you, a, a, I don't know, a dozen or more, more of the important thing that the word accomplishes by its activity. First, obviously, is salvation. Now, remember, salvation is made possible through both God's written word and through the living word. In other words, God's written word, the Logos, and the living word. Jesus was the living word, the Logos. So salvation is made possible through both. And of course, we know that, by, that we're saved by the precious blood of Jesus. So the word in Romans 10, 9 and 10, we all are familiar with, provides a process by which we are saved. By confessing Jesus as Lord and believing in our hearts that God raised him from the dead. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So we are saved by the word. Faith. The word develops faith. That's why you have Romans 10, 17 saying this. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The word of God. Faith is developed from hearing the word. Faith is never developed in a vacuum. Faith is never developed without knowledge. You can only develop faith when you have knowledge of something. In other words, you have faith in the fact that December 25th is Christmas. Why? Because you have knowledge of that fact. I have a nose that the 25th of December is Christmas because she has faith in it. Because she knows it. So faith is developed by the word. Healing. We know that the word heals. Psalm 107 verse 20 says this familiar scripture. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. The word saves us from sickness and disease and saves us from destruction. And of course, in Isaiah 53, 5, and in 1 Peter 2, 24, they both say, by his stripes, by Jesus' stripes, we were and we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5 says we were healed. 1 Peter 2, 24 says we are healed. Between the two, we must be healed. Protection. There's protection in the word and in the use of the word. And you've heard us teach this before. There's protection in the word and in the use of the word. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, that's 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 3, we're told this, and I'm quoting, but the Lord is faithful who will establish, meaning he will strengthen you and guard you, which means to protect you from the evil one. And in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, says this, be strong and of good courage, do not fear, nor be afraid of them. That's of anyone or anything. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. And of course you see that in the 23rd Psalm. Now Isaiah 54, 17 tells us that no weapon formed against you will prosper. Now note there, it doesn't say no weapon will ever be formed against you. If you've lived here at any period of time, you know that weapons are formed against you. It says they won't prosper. They won't succeed. So that's protection. And we also know that we have both a defensive and offensive weapon in the word, which is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. as stated in Ephesians 6, 17. So these are all right here. So you can get them. Some of you are forming little books from from these uh, passed out lessons. What I don't want to see is one, a book published with your name on it. Saying that, <laughs> but, but you can make a book, you can make a book. Uh. Now the word also gives life and health. There's life and health in the word. And you know this scripture, Proverbs 4.22. It says this, for, and it's talking about God's words, for God's words are life to those who find them, and health to all their flesh. And health really literally here means medicine. Life and health, life and medicine to all their flesh. This tells us that we need to search for those words of life and those words of health. And how do we search? We search by studying the word and by meditating on the word. Top of page four. 
we get knowledge and wisdom from and through the word. The word in James chapter one, verse five, familiar scripture, that's James chapter one, verse five, tells us this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. In Proverbs chapter two, verse six, we are told this, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, that's his word, come knowledge and understanding. We know this from scripture also in Colossians chapter one, verse 27, that, that Christ, Christ, <laughs> Christ dwells in us, within us. And in Colossians, uh, the very next chapter, two, and verses two and three, we find that it is, and this is a direct quote, it is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures and wisdom of knowledge. In Christ are hidden all the treasures and wisdom of knowledge. And what did Colossians 1.27 just tell us? That Christ is within us. Christ, Christ in us, remember? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if Christ is in us, and all of the treasures of knowledge and wisdom dwell in him, then guess where all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are? Now that's hard for most of us to even fathom or think about when we think about how little we know. But the wisdom is there and it's a matter of releasing that wisdom. It's a matter of recollecting that knowledge. It's a matter, it's not learning, it's a matter of releasing and learning how to release that knowledge that's already within us. Now, the word also provides learning. We see in Romans chapter 15, verse four, states this, for whatever things were written before, talking about God's word, they were written for our learning that we, through the patience and comfort of the scripture, might have hope. In other words, everything that was written in scripture, written before, was written for us to learn from. And this learning of the word is to combat the destruction we are warned about in Hosea 4, 6, where God says, and this is God speaking here in Hosea 4, 6, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. That's a lack of knowledge of his word. So you have his word in the scripture that's there for our learning. That's to make sure that we're not destroyed for a lack of knowledge. It is from God and God's word that we get wealth. Wealth is another thing that we get from and through and by the word. The power to get well. In Deuteronomy 8.18, you're familiar with this scripture, Deuteronomy 8.18, we are told, and you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get well, that he may establish his covenant. And unfortunately, so many people leave out that last part. So many people who criticize the so-called poverty, I mean, uh, prosperity gospel, it's because perhaps some of the prosperity teachers don't round it out. Apostle Price is always rounded out. He is always, in fact, he's given us, he's in his writings, in his books, the purpose for getting wealth. It is to help God establish his covenant. And we saw the process, this process of getting wealth described in uh, Joshua, the very first chapter, verse eight, Joshua 1, eight. And you had that book before you there. Here in Joshua 1, eight, it says this, this book of the law, meaning God's word, shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it, how often? Day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. Those are the commands. Those are the other things that, uh, that God have in his word. Those, those are the, the words that you're supposed to confess to, the words about healing, the words about wealth, the words about safety, all of these. Uh, you shall meditate on these words day and night that you may observe to do all, I'm sorry, to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. It gives you the template for having good success. You have there, the bottom of page four. In John 8, 31, uh, John, the gospel of John chapter eight, verses 31 and 32, Jesus says this, 
familiar scripture. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now we know what the word abide means. The apostle has described it to us so many times. Abide means to reside in, to live in, to take a residence in, not to just sleep over one night and never come back to it, to live in the word. And of course, you let the word live in you and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. So if there's any question about what the truth is, Jesus tells us this in John 17, 17, John 17, 17. He's praying to the father for his disciples and he says to the father, sanctify them by your word. I mean, I'm sorry, by your truth. Your word is true. So we know that his word is the truth and that if we know that truth, that's what makes us free. The bottom of the page, discipleship. We know that what Jesus tells us in John uh, chapter 8, 31, 32, which we just read above, that the foundation for becoming a disciple is the continued study and knowledge of the word. That's the foundation for becoming a good disciple. Two more, doctrine. It is from the word that we get our set of principles that we believe and have faith in. Again, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we learn, quote, all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for, number one, doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in, in righteousness. Now, it is doctrine that defines the precepts of faith of a church or ministry such as Crenshaw Christian Center. As I outlined in a previous message here, all of our tenets of faith listed on the back of the weekly bulletin are taken directly from the Word of God in the Bible. All of you have one of these bulletins. If you look on the back, most of you were here for that lesson, I think. I went through each one of, one of these and explained how each one the scriptures are profitable for doctrine. That's where we get our doctrine, is from the, from the word in the Bible. Finally, uh, we get confirmation of the word in our life. In other words, if we speak, confess the word, we get confirmation of that word in our life. It is from the word that we learn and know. It's from the word that we learn and know. And, we learn, and, and by that I mean, it's from the word that's a word in Mark 16, 20, that we learn and know that if we say and believe the word, God will confirm his word in our life. And this is set forth, of course, in Mark chapter 16, verse 20, that we've gone over before. Now, a little bit about understanding the word. You've heard the term logos and rhema, the above things that I just outlined to you and described to you are just some of the, some of the things that God accomplishes, accomplishes in us by his word and by his spirit. There are many more. I just outlined some principal ones there. We know that there are two primary Greek words that describe scripture, which are translated word in the New Testament. In other words, word, there are two names for scripture in the Bible that translate out into word. One word here is logos, which refers to the total inspired word of God and also the Jesus who is the living logos of the word. And you see that where Jesus is referred to as the living logos. You see that in the gospel of John. We're not going to go to it, but you've heard us cite this before. This is John chapter one, verse one, where it talks about in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. That word there is referring to Jesus. Jesus is the Lord. He's the living God. Uh, and uh, so that Logos refers to the total inspired word of God and to Jesus who is our living Logos or word. Now remember God's word on our behalf. I'm sorry, remember God's works on our behalf through his written word and through Jesus, the living word. And we're going to hear a lot more about this in the coming weeks, about how God works through Jesus on our behalf. He works on our behalf through his written word and through Jesus, the living word, as illustrated in uh, uses described above from salvation to the confirmation of the word. These are the things I went over with you. 
Now, the second Greek word that describes scripture is rhema. Rhema refers to a word that is spoken as uh, compared to the written word. And it literally, it literally means utterance. Rhema means an utterance, so it's a spoken word. But remember that all scripture is given by inspiration, logos or rhema. So within the mix of things that we describe from salvation to confirmation, we get from the word listed above, we can also see examples of the rhemas of God, which is the spoken word. And I'm just going to give you two examples here. We see in Romans 10, 17, that says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. That's the rhema word of God. And this is also evident in Ephesians 6, 7 and 17, which we cited earlier, which says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word, the rhema of God. In both of these scriptures, it is a spoken word that is operative. Again, rhema literally means an utterance and is therefore the spoken word. Now, in addition to working through Jesus and his word to benefit us, we know that God also works through the Holy Spirit to teach and guide us. And I'm going to describe how the Holy Spirit works through rhema to instruct us. It is the Holy Spirit who illuminates particular scriptures for personal ap application to daily life. In other words, uh, when I had the attack of cancer, the Holy Spirit brought to my uh, to my reading and understanding uh, Psalm 117, 18. Uh, you shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Uh, that was a rhema word for me. The Holy Spirit will illuminate particular scriptures for personal application to daily life. When you receive such an illumination, it is called a rhema word. Now you hear people talking about, I got a rhema word. You get this illumination of, it's a rhema word. Again, a rhema is a verse, a portion of scripture that the Holy Spirit brings to your attention with application to a current need a situation calling for direction. We're told that when God gives a rhema uh, for us, a rhema word for us to act upon, he often confirms it by a second rhema. By the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word, that's every rhema word, be established. It's stated in 2 Corinthians 13.1. Now, it is God's rhema word that Jesus is referring to when he tells us in Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. That's every rhema word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. This is also rhema when Jesus tells us in John, the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words, the rhema that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. Now, this is really just a brief discussion of logos and rhema because it can be confusing. And so that's why you have the next paragraph there. What does it say? Please don't become confused by logos and rhema. Just remember that all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And these words, logos and rhema, are all life to those who find them or who receive them. This is why it's so important for you to know, believe, and confess or say his word, whether logos or rhema. It is because of the life-giving and life-changing power of God's word that Satan continually seeks to separate you from the word or to separate you from the word that you hear, to separate you from your faith in the word. He's working day and night to do that. Satan is our adversary while Jesus is our advocate. Now, because Satan knows the power of the word and the power of faith to change your life, he is constantly at work trying to separate you from your faith in the word. And we see a good example of this in the parable of the sower. The sower, S-O-W-R, a person who sows seed. In this parable, Jesus tells us about the work of Satan to get you to negate the word that you hear. Now in this parable of a sower, which you find in Mark Gospel chapter four, verses 2 through 20, 220, and you can go back and read this whole thing for yourself sometime. I'm just going to summarize it uh, in these next uh, statements. 
Jesus tells the story of a sower who sowed seed in various kinds of ground. Some seed fell by the wayside and was immediately eaten by the birds of the air. Some seed fell on stony ground without much soil and could not develop deep roots. So when the sun came up, it easily burned the shallow plant because it wasn't rooted. Still other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked the growth and it produced no crop. The thorns around it choked the life out of the plant. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up. This is from good ground. And that crop, and it increased and produced some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100. And then Jesus explained the parable to his disciples who didn't understand it. In Mark chapter 4, verses 14 through 20, Jesus says the following. Going right down, 14 to 20. In 14, the sower sows the word. 15, and these are the ones, these are the wayside hearers. These are the ones, by the way, where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes when? Immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their heart. Because it was, you know, seen by the way, that means it was just dropped. So obviously there was no rooting, there was no grounding, there was no development of faith in it. Verse 16. These likewise, this is the other group, are the ones sown on, on stony ground who when they hear the word immediately, they receive it with gladness. This is a stony ground, remember, that doesn't have much soil around it. 17, and they have no root in themselves. There was no soil. If this, is, this is describing the people who flit from one church to another. They hear half of a word here and half of a word at another church and half of a word. They never get rooted and grounded. So they don't, they're not in one place long enough. The word needs to be rooted and grounded. In order to get rooted and grounded, you've got to stay planted in one place for a while. So that's what he's talking about there. They received it with gladness. This is just, they, in other words, they hear something here and they receive it with gladness, but you never see them again. They're off to another church. And they have not rooted themselves, and so they endure only for a time, like maybe a day or two or a week. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises, for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. 18, now these are the ones sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in to choke out the word. These are the thorns to choke out the word. And, and of course, the word becomes unfruitful. In other words, these, you, you, you come and you hear the word, but you're surrounded by family members, friends, co-workers, people that you associate with who are always talking negatively, even talking negatively about going to church or about faith or about that word church and so forth and so on. And that chokes the word out of your heart. The other one is if when you're just too busy. In other words, you're so busy you remember the, you know, the story of Martha and, and, and Jesus said, you know, he's talking about one of them, you're just too busy. Uh, she was complaining about the one who was always under him, listening to him. She's saying, you, you've got to be more like her. You've got to be not so busy with cleaning and serving and washing and scrubbing that you don't hear the word. So there are people who are so busy, and I talk about this a little bit later with their careers and so forth and so on, that they don't uh, take time to do anything about developing a spiritual life. So finally, but these are the ones sown on good ground. That's in a good and receptive heart. Those who hear the word accept it and bear fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. Now, so the word is the seed and your heart is the ground. And let's be clear on this. One point, Satan is at work in all of the cases where the seed did not take root. Satan is busy doing his, his own sowing, sowing doubt and unbelief in your mind and in your heart. Through thoughts, ideas, and suggestions, the devil will try to pollute your mind with all kinds of negatives, such as, you don't really believe this faith stuff, it doesn't work. Or just think about all the good times and the good things you're giving up to be part of this faith and word church. Or 
you're much too busy with your career and family problems to get involved in that church stuff right now. Satan will say to you, you have plenty, these are through thoughts tonight, you have plenty of time to think about religion much later in life when the kids are out of school and debts are paid off. Boy, the time you need it is when the kids are growing up and when you've got lots of debt. Top of page eight. Satan is also masterful in using tradition to steal the word. Satan will feed your mind with thoughts such as this. The church I grew up in never talked so much about the word and faith, and we certainly didn't believe in speaking in tongues, or tithing went out with the Old Testament, or with the early church. And this name and claim it is just a get-rich scheme that doesn't work for everyone. This is a version of Matthew chapter 15, verse 6, saying, thus you have made, this is, this is Jesus talking to the, uh, to uh, the, probably the Pharisees at this point. Thus you have made the commandment, meaning the word of God, of no effect by your tradition, by your traditional habits and practice and thinking. Tradition is a very powerful tool used by Satan to sow doubt, fear, and unbelief. The tradition that is most intractable is the traditional beliefs that spring from head knowledge instead of revelation knowledge. Springs from what you learn from the books, what you learn in school, what you learn in college, and so forth. And, so, and this, unfortunately, is why so many people, when they get into college, especially when they begin to learn some advanced thinking and philosophy and, and, and other things, and they get wrapped up in Plato or lost in Plato or, or, or some of the other philosophers and so forth, that they get so much head knowledge that they can't see any spiritual discernment at all. Head knowledge will have you respond with things like this. How can believing produce seeing when everyone knows that seeing is believing? Similarly, walking by faith and not by sight, that defies logic. It doesn't make sense. One needs to see where he is going with eyes wide open. Now we know that when it comes to the word of God, we believers have to remember that we are not talking about sense. We're talking about faith. Totally different things. That is why Hebrews 11 tells us this. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the evidence of the things that we can't see. It is the substance of the things that we hope for that we don't yet have in front of us. Satan efforts to steal the word you hear by whatever device he uses tells us very clearly that Satan is our adversary. This is why we are told in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. 1 Peter 5, verse 8. You have it there in front of you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And he devours you through some of the examples we just gave. The devil is lurking about seeking to hear you make negative statements or confessions about your life and the circumstances that you're experiencing. You know, he's looking around to hear you say things, you know, this is hopeless. There's no way out. This is not anything. This is serious. So forth. How can by his stripes... I am healed, apply to third stage cancer. He'll do things like that. If the word planted in your heart is not rooted and grounded by your developed faith, or if you are simply too busy to spend the time and study and meditation on the word, Satan will quickly devour the word that you have heard. This is why people need to stay put in a church long enough to get rooted and grounded in the word before moving from church to church. They should let the Holy Spirit guide them with respect to leaving or moving. Not let the usher or the person sitting next to you or somebody that you thought you heard whisper something about you and so forth. Or something that you thought that the pastor said about you and he wasn't even thinking about you when he said a certain thing and so forth. But you had a guilty complex. You thought he was talking directly. How does he know that about me? <laughs> he really didn't. Uh, so... It's important that we get rooted and grounded. Satan also, the bottom of the page eight, Satan also works against you as an accuser. In Revelations chapter 12, verse 10, Revelations 12, 10, the word says this. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength 
and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. Now all of these have come. For the accuser of our brethren, that's all of your fellow Christian brethren, who accuse them before God, how often? Day and night has been cast down. This is why you as a believer have to be sober and vigilant because your adversary, who is Satan, who is the devil, works day and night accusing you before God. Satan wants you to be powerless in being able to combat him with the word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we saw how Jesus combated Satan last week in Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, where he used the word of God to defeat Satan. Just think for a moment about what Revelations 12.10 tells you. It tells you that Satan is accusing you before God day and night. Now visualize a court of law here in New York City with a prosecuting attorney making criminal accusations against you, the accused. Then see Satan as a prosecuting attorney in the court of heaven accusing you. What do you think Satan is accusing you with? Just like the lawyer in the court of law here on earth, he's accusing you with words. Most likely, he is using your own words against you. This is why we stress to you to watch your mouth. Ivan did a whole series on watch your mouth and watch what you say by way of negative things or confessions about your life and circumstances. Satan is a legalist, and what you say can and will be used against you by him in the court of life and in the court of heaven. So we need help in defending against Satan's accusations. And thank God, God has provided us that help. God has, God has provided us a public defender who is above reproach. In fact, God has provided us a public defender who has been taught the law by the judge of all the ages, God himself. Nobody knows the law better than Jesus. And the public that he defends is the public of the kingdom of God. And guess what? That's us. We find this message in the word from 1 John, that's little John next to Revelations. 1 John chapter three, verse one says this. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, if anyone does sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is our advocate. Now, you know, before I go further, it's not stated here, but just want to remind you that we have two divine advocates. We have Jesus as our advocate in heaven. Who's our other advocate? Holy Spirit. And he is advocating on our half. He's advocating Jesus on our, on our behalf from within. That's his first mission, by the way, is to represent Jesus to us from the inside so that we can develop in the outer the fruit of the spirit and so forth. That's a whole other message. I talked part of that uh, before. So we have two divine advocates, Holy Spirit and Jesus. Jesus is our advocate in heaven. Advocate is a legal term. In the Greek, this word references a courtroom scene. Literally, advocate means counsel for the defense. Satan stands before the throne of God accusing the brethren, that's us, day and night. The high tribunal of God is open 24 hours a day, every day of the week. There's never a holiday and thank God for that. Let's look at what else the word says about Jesus, who is our defender. In Hebrews chapter three, verses one, Hebrews three, one, the word tells us this. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus is the high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. When you combine this high priestly function with his legal function, then Jesus becomes the advocate or counsel for our defense and at the same time, the high priest of our confession. I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but he's a high priest of our confession. He can't represent us in heaven in this function if we don't have a confession. He's a high priest of whose confession? Confession. My confession. He takes your confession and that's what he is a high priest of. What you say if you don't say anything, guess what? He has nothing to represent you with on that. Now, unlike earthly lawyers, our counsel for the defense, Jesus cannot be bought or intimidated. At the same time, 
this counsel for the defense is not going to be concerned with whether you are able to pay a fee or not. In fact, the services of this law firm are given free to the citizens of the kingdom. That's us, without charge. Now, how does this counsel for the defense defend us in the high court of heaven when we have an adversary, the accuser, who stands accusing us day and night? Well, we're going to tell you right in the next paragraph. As our advocate and priest of our confession, Jesus defends us on the basis of two things. He provides intercession. He's interceding for us with the Father. Two, we, the Christian brethren, provide our confession. That's what he uses in our defense. Now, these next two facts are very important for you to know. So you have them right there. You can refer to them uh, over and over again. What I'm about to say now, if you do not provide or if we do not provide our confession, if you do not provide your confession, we, you, throw the case to the opposing attorney, that's Satan, and we will be convicted. You will be convicted. However, by bringing our evidence, our evidence is our confession, our attorney, Jesus, has irrefutable or irrefutable evidence that can exonerate us. By putting his evidence together with ours, it becomes an open and shut case in our favor and we are free to go. But if you don't come up with your half of it, he has nothing to put with his. You've got to open your mouth and say what God says about you. Power of positive confession. Now, let's look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, which we looked at before, and we'll add verse 11. 10 we read already. I'll read it again. Revelation 12, 10 says this. Then I heard, I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been cast down. But look at uh, 11, which we did not look at before. And they overcame him, how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their tes testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. This is how Jesus defends us. He defends us on the basis of his shed blood and guess what else? On the word of our testimony. And whether you realize it or not, the word testimony is another word for confession. Your testimony is your confession. They were defeated by the blood of the lamb, or they defeated him, them. Them meaning the accuser, or them in the world, or them anybody, by the blood of the lamb and by, in other words, you plead the blood of the lamb in this situation, and then the word of your testimony, your confession. To say it again, because this is important, the way Jesus defends us uh, on the basis of his shed, oh, Jesus defends us on the basis of his shed blood and confession. If you do not make a confession that is consistent with the word of God, Jesus does not have anything to defend you with. If your confession reflects the negatives about your situation, where this is a negative confession about your health, finances, or your standing with God, you allow the prosecuting attorney, Satan, to make a case against you that sticks. Why? Because with the negative confession, you are saying what Satan is already saying about you. No, you're sick about your case and that you are in fact sick and dying, broken, busted, or just an old sinner trying to get saved by God. People say that about themselves and so forth and so on. So when you confess these things, you are actually saying what Satan is already saying about you. That's why you have to watch your mouth. Now, when you say, I think I am sick or going to become sick, you are not giving Jesus a testimony with which he can defend you because it is contrary to the revealed word of God. And we've just went over that. I don't know how many times. What does the revealed word of God say? By his stripes you are, you were healed. He sent his word and healed and so forth and so on. The judge can only uphold the law, which is his word. The law is those scriptures that you should confess. That's, he can only uphold that word. This is why we at CCC emphasize so much the need for you to know, believe, and confess God's word so that he can confirm his word on earth in your life. What is confirmed for us in heaven is confirmed for us on earth. This reminds us of what the word in Matthew 18, 18. Matthew 18, 18. Easy, easy to remember, 18, 18, Matthew. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loose in heaven. 
basically bind and loose by what you say, by your confession. Now let's read what Apostle Price says about learning the need to provide a real positive testimony or confession about our life that gives a defense against the attacks of Satan the enemy. This is Apostle writing this. He says, when I discovered this and looked on my life, I said, no wonder I was in court every day. No wonder I was always getting sentenced. I never said anything in line with what Jesus could defend me with. And the churches I went to never told me that I had any defense anyway. This is while he was a minister of the gospel for about 15 years. In fact, they told me God was my problem. I did not realize that I had a prosecuting attorney who was trying to put me behind bars for life. That's Satan. However, thank God I have an advocate, but I have, uh, but I have to give Jesus, that's my advocate, my words, words that are consistent with God's words. When I do this, Jesus will defend me. If you join your confession with the words of your adversary, Satan, as I just described, then Jesus cannot act as your high priest. You tie his hands because if you're not confessing the word of God, he has no confession from you with which to work. Again, this is why we here at CCC stress learning the word. We all also stress the need to practice the art of positive confession and the need to speak life and not death to our life and to the many challenging circumstances in our life. We speak life when we say or confess what God says about us and we give Jesus our advocate words he can use on our defense. On all this, and we have Jesus, the last word, on all of this that we're just talking about, Jesus quite, is quite clear in Matthew chapter 12, verse 37. This is Jesus speaking in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 27. He says this, and this is the last word. For by your words you will be justified, that's acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. By your words, not by your, not by your pleading, begging, crying, not by your giving, by the way, not by your worshiping, not by your loving. All of those are important, but it's by your words you will be justified or acquitted. And by the way, the New International Version, the NIV, actually renders this scripture that way. It says, for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. All right? So what's the word today? Good word, positive word, words of life, not words of death.